Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. You are listening to the Build Your Network podcast. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. Simon, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. I appreciate it, Eric. Hi to everyone. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. And before we talk about all of the concepts that you're bringing to the table now, I want to go back to the very beginning. Talk to me a little bit about middle school, Simon. Like, what puts you on the path to where you are now? That's an interesting question. Middle school. Well, I think um, in Australia, I'm Australian. I've been in the States here for 25 years. But, you know, you grow up with this idea of, you know, everyone's a mate. And it's a great leveler. Everyone's the same. Everyone's equally important. And if you get like, you know, too full of yourself, they chop you down to size pretty quickly. Right. And I think that informed me in terms of when I saw things like the global economic meltdown in 2007, 2008, and a few people were doing really well and a lot of people were really suffering, I was sort of like, this isn't right. It just doesn't sit with me well. It doesn't seem fair. Right. So that's one part of it. The other thing is my father was a lawyer and I grew up in a household full of those sorts of concepts. And then I went on to study law at university so I think the whole values proposition that's sort of foundational to the law, that kind of shaped it as well. Right, right. So very early on, you were kind of focused on people and how they relate to each other. So that was there from the very beginning. 
I think so, but I was one of those insecure kids that always felt uncomfortable with confrontation. Mm. So they'd always be cracking jokes or having fun or doing whatever to make everyone else feel okay. So I think I've been a pleaser since huh. the early full confession. <laughs> no, I can I can definitely relate to that. Well, I'm I'm curious, like heading into kind of the legal space, following in your in your father's footsteps a little bit, was that kind of your goal or was that something where you kind of fell back into that because it was the the most logical path? Well, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Like most 18-year-olds, you graduate and go, now what? And the last thing in the world I wanted to do was law and my dad wanted me to do it. So I spent five years at law school confirming the fact that I did not want to be there and should not be there. Um, But I also did fine arts and I was the guy who wanted to be off doing life drawing and painting and studying art history. But, you know, that didn't seem like a secure vocation for any young man at that time. So I ended up combining my love of art and sort of the visual side of things with my love of language from the law. And that led to advertising. Right, right. So what was your first kind of step into the advertising space? Because that's really the world that you've been in. And that's where you're kind of at right now. Uh, What was kind of your first steps into that world? You know, I came to the game late, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And so I stepped into, you know, the advertising school in Australia and did well, but I was a little bit older than everybody else. And you know, it was an interesting experience. I did my first internship at Saatchi and Saatchi in Sydney and, and then got a job at DDB Needham, back then DDB Needham in Sydney. And, you know, as luck would have it, you know, the first ads I wrote did very well at the Cannes Ad Festival. And then so I got encouragement from that. From that, And I did another year of at, at DDB and had more success at Cannes. And then I thought, well, you know, I went to the Cannes Festival and I got these awards and I saw all these people from all around the world really engaged in the dialogue around how brands can tell stories. Sure. And so I decided I wanted to go to London. And I was newly married, young guy, and I went off to London and I knew I couldn't see my new bride until I got a job. Hmm. So I couch surfed for six months, went to a thousand interviews, you know, and half the time they didn't turn up or they're like, oh, and, and you are another, another darn Australian just turning up here being annoying. Eventually I got a job there and I spent, you know, four years in London working um, on BBC, Harrods, Adidas, brands like that. And then, you know, I got headhunted to go and work at Wyden and Kennedy, which is Nike's agency over in Portland, Oregon, which I didn't even know where it was on the map at the time and, um, ended up in Portland with my wife and a young baby in tow. So it's, mm. it's been this, there's no plan, Eric. There's no plan at all. Right. It's just been happenstance and accidents and just clumsy kind of life journey. I'm always fascinated by people like you who end up working with companies like Nike, or they end up working with agencies that have these massive clients and they get, it's essentially the dream job in that career space. Uh, what was it that made you say, I want to step out and do my own thing? You know, cause you could have sat very comfortably, I'm assuming at any one of those companies and had a great career. What was it that made you say, I want to take this in my own kind of unique direction? Sure. I mean, my last staff job after working at Nike's agency was worldwide creative director on Motorola. And I helped launch the, launch the Razor wow. phone back then. And Everything was set, the trajectory. But I tell you, I, it's a great question because I was, found myself walking around my, apart, my house here in LA. You know, I had a young family, two young daughters, you know, and I didn't even tell my wife, but I was really unhappy and I didn't know why. And it's quite unsettling to, have, you know, dragged your butt and the family all around the world like so many Australians do, only to find that you've done the cool, the cool kid job on Nike and you've done the big job on Motorola and yet you're not feeling fulfilled. And I think I was looking for meaning in my work. And at that point, as the universe would have it, I walked into my kitchen and there was an answering machine on the counter. So this was sort of, you know, right around 2000. And there were five messages. 
First one from my mum, very upset, yelling down the phone because she's calling from Sydney and I'm in LA, LA time and she's calling in the middle of the night. Another one from my mum, third from my sister saying, Simon, wake up, wake up. Fourth one from my mum, my mum yelling down the phone, quite upset. And then finally the fifth message and she said, Simon, dad died. He was calling to say goodbye. Call us when you wake up. And it was that sort of, you know, coincidence of being professionally destabilized and then emotionally destabilized on the, on the personal side that for the first time I kind of got out of my way, Eric. I, I'd always been the guy doing the right thing or trying to live somebody else's version of success or trying to do the right thing as a young dad. And I was so destabilized. I just sort of, I didn't try and fix it. I was just like, oh my God, everything sucks. I'm just going to, yeah. whatever. I can't even think about it. And it happened to be in that time, about two weeks later, I read the speech that Bill Gates gave at the World Economic Forum that year, you know, with the global economic meltdown still playing out, where he said the private sector needs to play a bigger role in social change. You know, mm -hmm. government can't fix it, philanthropy can't fix it if business keeps creating these problems. And I took that very much to heart. I, I'd had experience in building movements and shaping culture on Nike and on launching phones for Motorola. And I thought, what if we took the power of that storytelling across to business to help it do less bad and more good? Mm. So I wrote a book called We First that came out in 2011. It was a New York Times bestseller and voted best marketing book of the year. And it really laid out how you use social media to make you know, a greater difference in the world. And for the last 10 years, my company, We First, has been working with all these amazing brands to help them have a positive impact. Yeah, that, that's what sets you apart from kind of the typical branding agency. When you look at your site, so much of it is about social impact and creating positive change. And you, you mentioned shaping culture, like shaping that sort of thing. When you say that, what comes to mind when you think about what you do and your main mission, how would you boil that down for somebody? Absolutely. And, and I got to say, in all honesty, when I started the company in 2011, I couldn't buy a lunch with anyone, Eric, to talk <laughs> about this stuff. Everyone's like, it is so cute that guys like you exist, these naive, wide-eyed, optimistic people exist, but it's never going to happen. Hmm. And yet the first chapter of my book was the future of profit is purpose. And here we are 10 years later, and every brand's falling over themselves talking about their purpose. Why? Because the context of the world in which we live is so challenging. And so what we do at We First, my company, is we do the strategy work, which is how to define your brand, how to position your brand, especially as more companies are talking about the good work they're doing. Then we do the culture building, training, tools, planning to roll that out in a small company or a very large company. And then we do the impact storytelling which might be a manifesto film or employee films or impact films that tell you about the good work you're doing. And so we're very much a strategic consultancy committed to one thing only, driving growth and impact for purpose-driven brands. And so we are, we are very different when we're not in the agency world at all. Right. So you're not really spinning what they're already doing. You're really going in on the ground floor and helping create the culture. So it starts with the teams. It starts with building there and then moving into really the last thing is the front-facing public view. Absolutely. Starting at the other end is like letting the tail wag the dog. Yeah. You, know, you get so in so much trouble if you're guilty of purpose washing these days or just managing the optics or putting a nice campaign out there. That's why we're not an ad agency. We're a consultancy because the purpose of a company, why it exists, needs to be foundational mm -hmm. and inform all aspects of the business from supply chain to its culture and people and talent management through to the products it makes and its innovation through its marketing out into the world. And yes, to its community impact work, but it's foundational to the entire company. And increasingly, if you just go out there with a campaign, you run the real risk of being called out by your employees, investors, or consumers of just really 
playing at it, paying lip service to this idea of being more responsible. Yeah. Yeah. You see that all the time on social media. Someone will change their profile cover for a certain month or they'll change it for a certain event and people just shred them in the comments because it doesn't feel real. That, That veneer is very easy to spot in the social media age. Even more so, not just from you know conscious consumers, but your own employees. Look at what the way employees at Amazon or Facebook or Google have called right. them out over the last yeah. couple of years. And now it's the investor class as well. Investors will say, we're not going to put our money in you if you're not set up to be defensible in public and to be on the right side of history in terms of solving for these issues. You're really going to get in trouble. Right, right. Well, this all sounds really good, but I definitely want to give people some practical ways to start doing this within their own companies, whether it's a it's a smaller company that they're just starting, whether they're somebody that has multiple employees. When when you talk about leading with we, changing the culture of your company and in the world that you're serving in, uh, how does that look? What are maybe some practical applications to start that that journey? It's a great question. And we work with startups of just a couple of people all the way through to brands everybody knows. And these principles apply across the board. The first is you have to do a sober audit of where your company's at and really assess, okay, are you really using suppliers that can be defensible in public, you know, that really are responsible or are they polluting or are they using bad labor practices or whatever? Also have a look, especially after the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, what, how much diversity and genuine inclusion is there inside your company? And then what products are you taking to market? You know, are they ones that are better, good for you, good for the planet, or are they just there to make money and then they just become waste and landfill or whatever else it might be? So once you've done that audit, then you need to define your purpose, which is why you exist as a company. And there's a, there's a process we have for that, but it's a series of questions. And here are three of the key questions to ask yourself. What is your enemy in the sense of what do you exist to solve for? For me at We First, it was the me first mentality that really led to so much trouble in 2007, 2008. For Uber, it's the bad taxi experience. For Airbnb, it's the homogenous hotel experience, and they really want to allow you to belong anywhere. Secondly, what are you the only of? There's only one company like yours, one founder like yours, one moment in time, one industry at that moment. So what are you the only of? And then thirdly, when you're at your best, what are you doing? When you are at your best, what are you doing? Where you're just crushing it, and if you're a sole opener, you're high-fiving yourself. Who knows? But, you know, when you start to answer these questions, you can start to externalize, instead of having a bounce around in your head, why you exist. So a sober audit of your company, define your purpose, and then with your employees and your customers, co-create the impact in the world that you want that is an expression of that purpose. And that word co-create is important because if you just tell people what they should care about, by and large, they back away. Don't tell me who who I should be or what I should care about. But if you say to them, this is why the company exists, and we'd love to talk with you about different ways that we can bring that to life and you can participate, the same with consumers, suddenly all your stakeholders, internal and external, will build your business with you. And then to the point about lead with we, the wider you can enlist more partners, more collaborators, even competitors in your own industry, the greater the impact you can have and the more that impact will build your bottom line and grow your business. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I was taking notes while you were uh, while you're listing those three. There you go. And um I'm I I I love that you mentioned too just a side note. I love that you mentioned genuine diversity and I think that's something that that's come up a lot. Um, I I interviewed someone 
recently who was talking about, you know, sexism within the workplace. And one of the things that she mentioned was there's a lot of uh, faux egalitarianism that she said. It's people that will have I someone have there. I have heard this, that term. I like that, faux egalitarianism. You, you can steal that. Uh, yeah. Uh, Tiffany Bloom wrote a, wrote a book on it and she, uh, she talks about it and she uses that term. And she says people will have a woman on the board for the appearance well, that doesn't do anything to fix the culture. It's just it's 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 almost more offensive <laughs> than not having them there. And so I think that's really important, genuine diversity and not doing what a lot of companies do, which is slap a label on and say, now we're passionate about this cause or flavor of the week. It's we are actually passionate about this this one thing. And I'm I'm curious for people who are advanced in their business, they have a small team. I mean, once you have one person, the chances of disagreements and lack of focus is is there. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed Survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters. Is, is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. How do you steer the ship toward a purpose if you're already established? How do you you know, when you do find that that vision, how do you start getting people to get that buy-in and, and start taking part in that? It's a great question. And I mean, buy-in has to happen first at the leadership level. It might just be you if you're a solopreneur or founder, or it might be a board if you've got a larger company. Yeah. And here are three things you can do at that level. Firstly, look at the research. There's so much business case out there for the bottom line benefits for really being articulate about why your company exists, the role it plays in the world, and so on. Secondly, do a competitive audit. Look at other brands out there in your category and look at what they're doing because by and large, you'll find a lot of them are leaning into this idea of you know sharing what role they're playing in the world. And then thirdly, do a cost-benefit analysis where you say, what's the cost of doing this? And it could be serious in terms of time and money, but what's the potential cost of not doing it in terms of losing relevance 
or not being able to attract the talent you want or not winning the loyalty of new conscious consumers. And then what's the benefit of doing it and the benefit of not doing it? And when you lay that out, typically in our experience, we find that whether it's just a small team or a large company, they kind of go, huh, yeah, I mean, I instinctively want more of that myself for the company and I've noticed competitors doing it, but I didn't really fully understand how related to the business case it is and therefore let's let's explore it more. Hmm. And then to your point, I'm getting buy-in from your employees and so on. As I mentioned, you can't be prescriptive. You have to actually just share it with them and say, rather than this being top-down like a hierarchical org structure or the supply chain, it's a bottom-up exercise hmm. where you say, this is our foundational purpose and we exist as a company and with our products to bring that to life. For example, Airbnb, to create a world where anyone can belong anywhere or Patagonia to save our home planet. The company, its products exist to enable that, in which case, how would you like to participate? What ideas do you have? Could we do an annual volunteering day? What could we do quarterly at all hand meeting, all hands meetings to celebrate employees? How could we re-engineer our supply chain? What better practices do we need to look after the whole human being with our employees? How could we innovate products in new ways that better serve our future? So leadership buy-in is critical, otherwise nothing will happen. But it's got to be a bottom-up approach that is ultimately co-creative with your employees and with your consumers. Well, I love that you can have that diversity of thought and all these micro-solutions that serve that primary singular focus. Exactly, That's right. Really- you know, you may want to volunteer. I may want to do donations. Someone else may want to share content. Someone else may want to be in the R&D team and come up with a new product. You've got to rec- recognize the individual human being inside your company and give them a suite of ways that they can actually participate. I love that. I love that. Yeah. If, so, if anybody's listening, I hope you wrote <laughs> all of those points down and we'll audit yourself. Um, I, I got to ask you this question because we are the Build Your Network podcast and we ask this of every single guest that comes on the show. And I, I think I know your answer. I think I could guess, but I'm curious, what do you think is more important, who you know or what you know? I think ultimately, and I say this on a personal level, I think what you know because life has been a journey, you know, and we've all learned hard-won lessons and we've all screwed up royally that has taught us some pretty hard lessons. And so I think that wisdom almost means that you don't need to worry about who you know. And I've been lucky enough to do a lot of speaking in different places around the world. And the one thing I've found, those people have reached success and other people know who they are. By and large, they've got over themselves. Hmm. And actually, they find the greatest fulfillment comes not by what affirmation they get from others outside in, but what service they provide to others from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And so I've found that fulfillment is an inside out job, not an outside in job. And so I think that's a function. That's something that I've learned after more than my fair share of mistakes. And so I think it's about what you know, because ultimately who you know doesn't matter so much. If you're doing the right thing and you're doing it authentically, the people you need will show up in your life and, and they'll respond appropriately and you'll be amazed what you can do together. Right. And it sounds like you're saying you'll be able to serve them better, which is going to lead to better relationships long term. It is. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the big mistake in marketing, especially in this algorithmic, digital, social AI world, is how transactional it's all become. Yet we still need to be relational. We're still human beings sitting around a campfire, sharing stories about our company, our products, our hopes, our dreams, what we want for ourselves. And I think there's a huge advantage to companies today where if you approach others and you communicate with them, you are heart-led and you do show up of service to them and you speak to a purpose that's higher than your company itself 
and you give them an opportunity to participate because all the research bears out that the younger demographics want to buy from, work for, and invest in companies doing good. And even older people like me, you know, we came, we now look at the world and we realize all these challenges we face from plastic in the oceans to loss of biodiversity to the climate emergency. And we realize we're complicit in the problem because we helped create it just by the way we were living in the past. And we need to show up in meaningful ways to do something about it. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, I'm going to move us here into our final random round. I'm really curious to hear your answer to all these questions. First up, what profession other than your own do you think would be fun to attempt? Oh, if I had my druthers, I would be a full-time, highly unpaid artist. Interesting. I would be wonderfully, gloriously impoverished. Painting? Uh, Painting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That'd be awesome. Uh, If you could sit on a park bench with anybody past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? You know, it's interesting for me. I think I might say President Barack Obama, Hmm. former president, only because I've always been deeply moved by powerful uh, writers, authors, and speakers, because I believe in the power of language to shape behavior and, and rewrite our future. And so I think of JFK, I think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I think President uh, Barack Obama was a, was a wonderful orator. And I'd love to have a conversation with him around, you know, the power of language to create cultural inflection points where things mm-hmm. turn in a new direction. And so it wouldn't be about what he's done or what I'm doing, but really it'd be about language itself because language codifies behavior. So if we recode language, we can reframe behavior. And I find that fascinating. How do you like to learn best? Books, blogs, podcasts, videos? What's your what's your favorite way to consume information? I buy books like crazy. I have hundreds of them and it's just kind of a bit of a problem. And the worst <laughs> thing I've ever done is order up to five copies of the same book. Five, because I'd forgotten I'd already ordered it. But I see it, I'm like, I've got to get that. Yeah. So um, I think books, um, I don't, yeah, I don't, I think that's preferred, my preferred way. I like the written word. I see letters the alphabet like children and we're all teachers trying to organize these preschool kids to form into lines and and behave in different ways and um i love the ability to create tone and meaning through language so i think yeah definitely books give us a glimpse of your morning routine my morning routine well i am not a morning person so if i have half the chance my morning routine will be deep deep sleep (laughs) but otherwise i wake up I do have a moment of reflection where I sort of at night and before, when I wake up in the morning, I constantly remind myself that the one thing that I've got to approach everything with is gratitude. Whatever that is, just gratitude, because I think it unlocks the right things in your life. You show up in a way that's positive and um, respectful to other people. And ultimately, I think it is the key to happiness, irrespective of how things go, how successful you are, whether your words resonate or not. If you approach things with gratitude, you never feel like you're missing out. You're never less than. You're never lacking. Um, So I have a moment of gratitude. Do the usual ablutions to kind of wake me up because I'm like, oh, my God, I can't even see straight. And then I do – I have a smoothie. As I've got older, I've noticed that my diet becomes increasingly liquefied. Hmm. That's what I've noticed about getting older. And so, um, yeah, I'll have a smoothie and then, um, you know, say hi to the family and get cracking with work. This kind of leads to my next question. What's your go-to pump-up song? Do you have something you put on to get you my woken up? My go-to pump-up song. My goodness, that is a pretty interesting um, question for me. I I like a lot of music that um, – you know what I'm going to say? It's crazy. I'm a disco freak. Okay. I really like disco from the 70s, car wash yeah. and all those different things. It just seemed that there was a spirit 
of literal abandon in people where they were just having fun and it was so clear about what they're doing. You put on a good disco chat um, track and I'm out there with my bad dad moves. Yeah, when we're when we're road tripping, I'm always throwing on the Bee Gees, and my wife is not a fan. <laughs> so oh, she that's that's, it. But, that's uh, a deal breaker. My wife is the DJ in our house, but we agree on disco. That's funny. Yeah, disco's not dead. You, disco's you not dead. Disco's just sleeping. <laughs> uh, what is something that you're not very good at? You know, I'm not the bookkeeper side of business. Like mm-hmm. I'm the ideas guy. I'm like my my team in the office would agree that. I'm like a helium balloon that other people carry around and hold the string. Then occasionally they pull me down and go, what's going on? Because my head's in the cloud thinking about stuff all the time. That has its uses, but I am the most impractical person on the planet. I am really bad at just the whole daily life thing, and it's I'm horrible to live with. That's a typical artist trait, so uh, we need people to hold us down. True story. Last question. I know obviously you have your book coming out, so you may want to tell people where they can find that, but what is the best place to connect with you online? Well, firstly, thank you. Thank you to everyone's interest in the book. I mean, if you really want to know how to drive growth for your business by solving for these issues, large and small, social and environmental, whatever your little corner of the world is, but in a way that will drive growth, do get my book and it's at leadwithwe.com, leadwithwe.com. And it's also available on Amazon now. And then, you know, if there's one thing I would say to everyone, it's easy to be disheartened right now. There's a lot of challenges we face that make you think it's too big to solve for or why even bother trying. But I am seeing the most astonishing coalition of young people, innovators, entrepreneurs, business leaders, you know, investors and and financial firms all waking up to the challenges we're facing and working together in new ways to make solutions at scale possible that you couldn't even have imagined, certainly three years before, before the vi- you know, coronavirus really kind of was a wake-up call to everyone. So don't be disheartened. This is the time to go like hell. This is not the end of something. It's this literal, truly miraculous rebirth of business going on. And it's appropriately painful as a rebirth, but it is a rebirth of something where we are going to work with nature rather than against it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you'd like to find out more about my thinking, you can go to Lee with Wellcom for the book. You can also check out the company, wefirstbranding.com. But, you know, this is something that we're going to do together. And I think we're going to be astonished in the next 10 years about just how transformative business can be. Like we always say on the show, if you heard the name of a book, just buy the book, buy five copies of the book, <laughs> put them, leave them everywhere, all over your house. Um, go to leadwithwe.com and grab your copy today. And Simon, thank you so much for, for sharing with us today. Thank you, Eric. And I would, to your point, If you've got somebody in your company that has a lever of power, the CEO, the boss in any capacity, the person in in charge of sustainability, anyone you think who could move the needle, get a copy of the book for them and give it to them because it lays out a step-by-step roadmap for how your company can do it and drive growth. And I think it'll be really, really powerful in terms of you know, you helping the company show up in the world in a way that's going to make you happy. So get the book in their hands and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks, Eric. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Sweet. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.